0: at City Light that we move through a book from end to end is that you probably wouldn't sit down and choose to go through 1 Corinthians 5 if you were just picking passages and yet because we have to go through the whole thing, you cover everything that the Word of God says and so we come to 1 Corinthians 5 and we'll see that it's an important word for the church to hear and understand. I think this idea of dealing with sin and with issues in a community is a big one because it's one that we're not particularly good at. I remember for my group of friends in high school, and I imagine it may have been the same for you if you had a male group of friends, but uh, we, I wasn't a follower of Jesus, and we spent most of our weekends um, just getting as hammered as we could, but every crew had one uh, designated idiot who really, their main job, their main role in the group of friends was just was just to bring the action. They were the X factor. Most of the time, the reason for them being invited to a party was they're like, something's going to go down. If you invite this guy, it'll happen, right? It was part of coordinating the whole... If you put together a plan, you're like, have you called the loose guy yet? We need to make sure that he's there at the party. And so uh, we, we had one, and, um, and he was definitely a loose unit, and he was the life of the party. And, uh, and that's why people loved having him around. But I reckon, if I'm honest, looking back at it now, uh, I reckon around... When he turned about 18, as we moved from year 11 to year 12, things got a bit more serious. And I, looking back on it, would say he developed a problem with alcohol, and particularly with being an alcoholic. But no one, no one addressed it. No one talked about it. Everyone knew things were getting worse. And he was going from being the life of the party to a liability. And he was starting to have conflicts with other friends. And he, was, and it kind, of went, he kind of crossed over from being like, it's better to have him around to actually, it might be better if he's not around. But here's what never happens. Guys, never sit down and hold a tribal council and, and you know work out reconciliation or say, look, your behavior's getting a bit Larry. Do you want to rein it back in? Or No one even sits down and says, hey, look, Dingo's getting a bit loose. Should we just cut him out of, the, out of the loop? That never happens. But what happens is, slowly, without talking about it, there's a mutual understanding that this person, the texts and the calls and the invites are just going to slowly dry up for them. And the way guys generally deal with it is that instead of ever confronting things or talking about it or saying, mate, you've got a problem, you just slowly cut him out of the loop. And that's what happened for him. Over time, as his behavior went from being fun to kind of a bit annoying to actually a bit of a liability, he was just cut out. And that's how we dealt with it. And that was how it was in my circle of friends, and maybe it was the same in yours, maybe not. But I think it's a pretty common thing in the circles we run in. In fact, I think it's a pretty Western thing, or a pretty even specifically Sydney thing, that we don't confront issues head-on. We deal with things side-on. In our unique context in Sydney, one of the highest values we hold is that of being an individual. And one of the highest virtues we have is this. I should be free to live my life how I please, so long as it doesn't harm anyone else. And the idea is kind of, if you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And of course, the net result is that a lot of us feel very alone. And Jesus says, and Paul says in this letter, that that's not how it is to be in the church. That actually the church isn't to operate on the idea of individual freedoms, but on the higher principle of love. That actually you put yourself out to love someone else. And the thing about love is that it says and does culturally offensive things at times, like deal with sin issues head on. Or in this passage, as we'll see, even expel someone from membership in the church. This is a heavy one to look through, and so I'm going to pray that God would give me wisdom as I walk through this with us, as we consider what God is saying to his church through this in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, may we tremble. May we know that these are not the words of men, but of God, that we don't build your church on our opinions of how things should be according to our mind, but according to your word. And Father, we pray that you would humble us and lead us in the way that you would have us go, that we'd remember Christ crucified and our sins forgiven and the grace given us, that we might be a church that puts to death sin and lives to the righteousness that Christ has won on our behalf. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. This letter, 1 Corinthians, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, it's a letter written to a church in Corinth by a guy called Paul, and if you don't know much about Paul, he was a Jewish leader who despised Christians. He he didn't just dislike them, he didn't just not associate with them, he actively persecuted them. He saw Christians killed, arrested, thrown into prison. He was seeking to destroy this movement of Christianity early on. And while he was on the road to a place called Damascus on his way to persecute more Christians, Jesus confronts him, he repents, becomes a follower of Jesus, and then instead of killing Christians, is now people are trying to kill him for being a Christian. And he moved north of Israel, and he was, he was so convinced of the truth of Jesus that he wanted to tell everyone that he could, and so he plants churches north of Israel, all the way through Turkey, through Macedonia, and then makes his way down to Greece, and eventually down to Corinth. And in Corinth, he plants a church and then heads back through the other churches to appoint elders and check up on how they're going. And as he's doing that, about a year and a half after planting this church in Corinth, he's starting to get some messages and some letters, some reports saying things aren't going well back there. You need to deal with this. At this point, he doesn't have the time or the opportunity to go back there, not because he you know, can't be bothered, but because he might die on the way. It's a significant reason. And so he writes them a letter, and that's where we get one Corinthians. And he's writing to a city um, that engages with many of the issues that we are. Corinth was a wealthy city, and it was a sexually permissive city. And so when you bring the message of Jesus into that city, the message of the gospel, that is, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that, it's actually, uh, that sex is, is reserved for that relationship alone, when you bring that message into a city like Corinth, there's going to be some friction. And here in this part of the letter, Paul starts to address some of the ways in which the gospel starts to bear on their sexuality. He's covered unity so far, and now he moves on to sexuality. And he starts with something pretty heavy. In in chapter 5, sentence 1, he says this, It is actually reported, and this is, we get the idea that someone's been relaying letters to him, saying to him what's going on. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and that of a kind not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. or are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul straight away just calls out what's going on. He says to him, so far he's been talking about disunity. In this church, they've had all of these teachers come through, and they're all friends. So Peter, Apollos, and Paul were all mates planted churches and spread the gospel they've come through corinth and people in the church have said i'm kind of a jewish background i sort of like peter a bit more because he's jewish head of the church in jerusalem others have been like i'm greek i like wisdom i like apollos style others are like i like paul he's og all that kind of stuff everyone's sort of gathering around their own little teams and paul smashes it and he says if you believe the gospel that's ridiculous you follow christ no one else the rest of us we're just servants and so he's kind of addressed this issue of them boasting about who's the smartest and who follows the best leader. And he says, it's, it's ridiculous. But now he switches to this and he says, but more than that, while you guys have been boasting about how, how clever you are, how wise you are, what great Christians you are, there is a massive issue going on in the church. A guy has his father's wife, that's his mom. And the, the phrase father's wife probably means mother so in law, so they weren't a direct relation. But he's saying, look, even in Corinth, I mean, they do whatever. Even they're going, whoa, ease off, right? Even even reported outside the church, people are like, this is not okay. And he's saying, this is happening in your midst, and you're you're busy talking about who's the smartest Christian and who follows what. Get a grip, guys. He even says to them, you've been boasting. You should mourn. He's like, this guy's family is being torn apart. A guy is his father's wife. Think of the damage of the relationships around that. It's like you're boasting about stuff, you've, you've missed the point. You should be mourning. It's like they've lost their mind. I mean, to give like a, a similar sort of, you know, illustration, when I was at school, on our, say our rugby team, I never played rugby, but I had a friend who was built for rugby, and in year nine, year nine, he was $1.14. 114 kilograms, right? He was, he was, a, he was built for rugby. And, um, and much of watching the games was just seeing if the opposition could take him down. If he got any kind of momentum on the burst, he could have like three or four players hanging off him and still make sort of 25 meters to the try line right? So it was great to watch. But, um, but in year, I think it was 11 or, or the beginning of 12, the impossible happened, and he got knocked out. So, I mean, you should, you should, you should have seen the other guy, but, uh, but he actually got knocked out. And, um, and remember, I wasn't there for it, but then reporting back to me what happened. When he got knocked out, the coach was trying to see just how concussed he was. So he was asking him questions. And all my mate could keep saying was, How's my car? How's my car? How's the V8 going? Right? That's all that was on his mind. And now you could think, well, maybe it's because he was really car obsessed or whatever. But the medical explanation would be that after a concussion, your mind is disordered. So you're not really thinking about the right things. You're not thinking about, like, am I okay? Like, can I see properly? He's, for some reason, for him at that moment, he just could not stop asking about his car. But looking in on the moment, you, you, you know what's going on. You're like, this is obviously not right. Like, something, something out of order is happening here. If someone has just had that happen, and they're asking these questions, their brain is not functioning properly. And Paul is saying something similar to the Corinthians. He's like, you're off off boasting. You're off talking down about other Christians and about who's the smartest. And you've got, no one's dealing with this issue. He's like, you shouldn't be boasting. You should be mourning. If you really understood what was going on, you would be and should be mourning. And so he says, you're out of your minds. And he says, deal with this. And he says, expel this man. Cast him out of the church. Now, if you're here and you're just finding out about who Jesus is or you're a little skeptical or you're investigating, you might say, well, that sounds pretty harsh, that actually you could be kicked out of a church. But isn't that the case that many people and even denominations would have been spared all kinds of grief if churches had just taken this passage a little bit more seriously? in the way that they dealt with leaders who abused their power, if churches had taken this a little bit more seriously earlier on, It may have spared many generations of people, all kinds of grief. And so here, Paul says, sin is serious and it needs to be dealt with. Everybody knows about this issue in your church, Corinth. Deal with it. Remove this guy. And he goes on to explain why. Look in in 1 Corinthians 5.3, he says this, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, this is a tricky little section. There are a few phrases here that Paul used that we need to move through carefully to understand what he's saying. The first thing he says, though I'm absent in body, so I'm not there with you at the church, he says I'm present with you in spirit. Paul isn't saying that he's got some kind of a a spirit being that floats around in Corinth as well. And when they put the letter down, they're like, ah, he's actually here. He's not saying something, you know, wacky or spiritual like that. All he's saying is he's like, like, it's like I'm there with you. I'm feeling what's going on. I love this church. I planted you guys. I raised you up in Christ. He says in the chapter before, I'm like a father to you. He's like, I care about what's going on. I'm, I'm invested in what's going on. In the second letter to the Corinthians, because they had so many issues, he had to write two letters to them. At the end of the second one, he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, the anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? who is made to fall, and I'm not indignant. Paul is saying, like his spirit is with them. He feels for them. He sees what's going on, and he cares about it. So he is with them in this. But then he says something pretty contradictory, especially if you've been with us for a few weeks. He then says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. If you were here last week, or even the week before, Paul has gone into great detail saying don't judge one another. Don't look down on each other. If you understand the gospel, you'll see that it's nothing that you have done, so you can't look down on another Christian. He's gone on and on and on and on about it, and then all of a sudden he's like, I've already judged this guy. What's, has he lost his mind? Was he like, don't be all judgy? And he's like, but this guy, like, I'm going to judge the heck out of him, right? And he's, he's totally flipped. No, I think it's on purpose, I think Paul spent such a long amount of time explaining the gospel and how it is that if you understand that, you cannot look down on anyone. So that when he gets to this point of dealing with these kind of issues, people will know that you can't do this and look down on someone. You can actually make a clear call on someone's sin without being condescending to them, without thinking that you're any better than them. The closest parallel I can think of was a friend of mine who I knew early on when I became a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus and a recovering alcoholic. And I remember in dealing with one particular friend's issues, he could pick straight away that he was an alcoholic. He could see all the telltale signs. And so when he called him on it, he could do it and say, mate, I, th- I really think you've got a problem with alcohol. But without it coming across as a like a, I'm better than you or a condescending kind of, you know, this thing where he was exposing this other guy, he could say it with complete humility. He could say it with the sense of like, I know what you're doing because I've done it all myself, I see you in myself, there's nothing that you've done that I haven't done, but I'm calling you on it, you've got a problem with alcohol. And it was the case that he could call him out, that he could call out sin for what it was, without any sense of, but I'm better than you, or I would never do that. There was a humility to it. The phrase is there, but for the grace of God go I. And so I think Paul's built up this whole section on not judging, not looking down, because he's saying when you get to this point, you're going to need to deal with this issue, but you need to understand that you can't look down on this guy. And you can't look on him as though you would never have done such a thing. It's totally contrary to the gospel. And then he goes on to say what it is that they're to do. And in Corinthians 5, sentences 4 and 5, Paul says this, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what is this about? This is some tricky language, so we need to pay careful attention to what he's talking about here. This doesn't come out of nowhere. We know from Paul's letters that he was familiar and knew the teachings of Jesus. Either he had a full copy of one of the Gospels or he knew it. Later in 7, that Gav's going to be preaching on in a couple of weeks, Paul talks about a word from the Lord that is like the specific words of Jesus. And so he knew his words. And here it seems to be clear that he has in mind Matthew 18. And you might have heard if you've been in church circles for a while, Matthew 18 quoted. Often people quote this verse where Jesus says, where two or more gather together, there I am with them. And it's usually kind of the start of like a prayer meeting or something. The problem is the context is church discipline. And so here in Matthew 18, have a look at what Jesus says Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now this section is talking about Jesus giving authority to his church to exercise church discipline. He's saying when it comes to dealing with sin, go straight to the person. Don't gossip around them. Don't tell everybody else about it. You go straight to that person. If they don't acknowledge that, you take someone with you. Not so you can gang up on them, but so there's a witness there to mediate. You can check both sides and see if you're actually being reasonable. And then if they won't listen to that, and it's clear that there's unrepentance, he says, tell it to the church. And when the leadership address it with this person, if they still won't repent, he says, then you treat them like a tax collector or Gentile, like an unbeliever. So you continue to love them and to share with them the gospel, just like Jesus treated tax collectors and sinners, right? But you don't call them brother, and they're out of the church. You're looking to win them over to Christ. And it seems like this is what Paul has in mind. Even the language of gathering or assembling is there, the same word. And then it comes to this phrase. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean? Well, again, we don't just look at a passage and think, well, what do I think this means? We weigh scripture against scripture. And in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, he describes Satan as the, the prince who is over the, the kingdom of the air. That is, that all those who are not under the reign of Jesus, that is the church, are under the power of Satan. And so when Paul says here, deliver him over to Satan, he's saying, pass him out from the church where Jesus is head and to the world. And when he, says to him, uh, when he says to do this for the destruction of his flesh, he's saying, look, if he wants to pursue this relationship as his father's wife, he refuses to acknowledge that it's sin, he refuses to repent of it, you let him do that, but not as, not as one who calls himself a brother or who's a part of your church. He says, allow, uh, says, send, deliver him to Satan. But, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the hope is here that as they do that, they draw a line in the sand so they say something's not right here. You keep saying you're a brother, you keep saying you understand the gospel, but your life isn't showing it. It's not reflecting it in any way. And so we're going to say we don't think you are a brother so that he might have the chance to repent and understand where he's really at. See, this is the truth of the gospel. We saw just two weeks ago that what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus died for you, and your faith is in Him, and that's not because you made a good, wise choice or you weighed all the options properly, but because God sent His Spirit into your heart so that you would understand who Jesus was. The idea is that when you get saved as a Christian, God gives you a new heart with new desires. That doesn't mean that you become a perfect person, but you have new desires. There is a desire to follow Jesus, to put to death sin, and to follow after Christ. And church discipline here is when Paul is saying, you call it on someone's life to say, I don't think there's evidence of a new heart here. The way, What you're saying, the way you're living, there's no repentance over sin. There's no even brokenness over it. In fact, the things that the Bible is saying is sin, you're just ignoring completely or saying it's not. It says, I don't think that's evidence of a new heart. And so Paul says, expel your moral brother. And he says it matters that churches should take it this seriously because heaven and hell is at stake. And someone may be deceiving themselves into thinking they're a Christian when it runs plainly against what they see in Scripture. And Paul goes on to explain why this matters. Have a look at what he says in Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now why is, why is Paul all of a sudden going on about flat bread? Why is he going from this heavy sort of church discipline stuff and then all of a sudden he just wants a bit of kofta and some hummus? Why is he, why is he switching gears? He's trying to make a very just simple illustration. He's saying if you make flat bread, you don't put leaven in it right it's unleavened so it doesn't raise it doesn't give you that fluffy sort of style it's, it's flatbread as soon as you put a little bit in you change what it is completely and he's saying it's the same with following jesus he's saying the church is meant to be different he's not saying you justify yourself he even says that for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed you are already unleavened you've already been made clean now it's time to live that reality out and he's saying what's happening here is not in line with that he's saying it doesn't make sense so does this mean then that Paul is saying, well, if you've got to cast out the old 11 of sin, that, that the church is meant to be just this holy huddle, that basically become a group of people, a small community, who bunker down away from the world and just huddle together for warmth until Jesus comes back, throw a few Bibles out a year, hope it hits someone and they become saved, or whatever it is, right? Is that what he's saying the church is to be? Well, no. Look at what he says next. In 9 to 13, he says, I wrote to you in my letter... Not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not associate, to not associate with one who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is not saying that to be a Christian is to create a holy huddle that just pulls people together who have, who have hit the right standards for holy living in order to be accepted. He's not saying that. Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors, but not to leave them where they were, but to preach the gospel with them that they may repent and believe and have their lives transformed. And so he's saying, look, for those who, who don't, Claim to follow Jesus, don't hold them to Christian standards. You love them like Jesus did, you share the gospel with them, you want to convince them that Jesus is true. But for someone who says, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a follower of Jesus, their life needs to match up with what you see in Scripture. It needs to be evidence that that claim is actually true. And what does this mean? With Matthew 18 in mind, it means someone for whom there's been an established long, unrepentant pattern. That there's this, a clear and obvious sin. Paul is, is talking about one particular issue, one particular person, and the sin is so well known, and the effects of it have so many reverberations that everyone in and outside the church knows about it. It's got all the way to him, wherever he is in Macedonia or even further on. He's saying this isn't a minor thing. It's a long established It's not a misstep or a one-off or a mistake. This is a settled pattern and commitment to a relationship that he says is against the word of God. And so he says to them, Expel the immoral brother. He says, You can't keep coming on to church gatherings and pretending like everything's fine when it's clearly not. You need to call it, guys. I've only seen this happen once in the church communities that I've been a part of. And I thankfully didn't have to be a part of it. There was a senior leadership that were looking after it. There was a man who had left his wife and was unwilling to reconcile with her there's no unfaithfulness but she wanted to reconcile the relationship and he wouldn't and wanted to keep coming along to church and a group as as a as a brother as though nothing were wrong and the church leadership said to him you can't They said you can't keep coming along to our gatherings pretending that everything's okay after everyone's met with you after it, it, it pleaded with you to go and get counseling to work this out and you refuse to do it and you say you're still following Jesus with your whole heart and they said it's not happening and called it right there you might say well that's, that sounds harsh and it is but you know what would be even more harsh for him to sit there just a few rows away from his wife who is grieving and suffering and everybody else is pretending like nothing's wrong like it's fine like this is how the people of Christ are to relate to one another with no contradiction. Paul says you can't do that. You have to call it. But here is the truth of it. Church discipline matters are incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare that you get to the point where someone is willfully disobeying the word of God and still wants to be a part of a church community. I mean, in this day and age where you've got so many options to do whatever with your weekends, it's almost unlikely that this comes about as a combination It's very rare that this happens. It's very rare in the letters of Paul. This is the only instance that we have of this happening. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18. There are a few other areas where it comes up, but it's pretty rare in church life there for the same reason. But what tends to happen instead is that we just don't actually know each other very well, and so most of the time when there are issues of major sin or doubt, they just go unnoticed. They get worse and worse until someone just disappears. And years later we think, I wonder what happened to that person. You look back at youth group photos or beach mission photos, and you think, gosh, where did half of those people go? The far bigger issue will be that we will just quietly alone back out of the faith. The author Samuel Johnson says of his falling away, shade after shade went darkly over my soul till nothing was left but complete black. It wasn't a big moment. It wasn't a, a massive tension or a confrontation. He was just saying, just bit by bit, shade by shade, went over my soul until it was just blackness. And there was nothing that I could call that resembled faith in me. So usually we don't deal with these things because dealing with sin is hard and it's messy and we don't want to do it. And why is it like this? I think for that reason, it's difficult. To do what Paul is saying is really difficult. To lovingly confront sin, to follow the words of Jesus in this area is very difficult. The, what tends to happen is one of two things. Either we do the just kind of um, people share something and we just do the kind of sending prayers and good vibes in your direction sort of thing and just hope it's all all right with you. Or, or the other one is the slap and run. That is like there's an issue of sin. You have one major confrontation, throw a haymaker and then just leg it. That's it, you're out of there. You go, I did my bit, I dared myself to actually confront someone and now you just you drop a huge bomb, confront them over something and then just disappear. And neither of those are the kind of loving, persistent, patient sort of love that we see in the gospel or what Paul is talking about here. See, why don't we confront sin? I reckon there are a bunch of reasons. I think we don't confront sin for probably the good reason of we don't want to seem holier than thou. I mean, when when I look into my own heart and I see this sin,